Why listen to the book of Ruth? I'll give you a few reasons. Even writers who have no sympathy with Christianity, in fact are quite anti-Christianity, have called this book of Ruth one of the most beautiful short stories ever written. Here's another reason to listen to it. If you're sceptical about God, maybe you're sceptical about God. Maybe you say, well, I can't see him. I never hear him. I think the Bible's just a book packed full of miracles and I don't see any miracles happening today. Well, Ruth is a book about ordinary life. There are no miracles. There's no prophet. There's no voice from God. God isn't obvious in this book, but it is a book that's written to tell us he is there at work, quietly behind the scenes. Here's another reason. If you are a Christian, here is a book of good examples worth following. And they're examples not of kings and leaders and world changers, but ordinary people living ordinary life and struggling with very ordinary difficulties. Last reason, the biggest reason is, this is God's word. It's God's message to us. So let's listen to it now. Ruth is a story. So over the next few weeks, I want to simply follow the story and point out lessons along the way. This this week, we're going to go through most of chapter one. I'm going to cover basically the whole chapter, but we'll come back to some of it and pick up the highlight of the chapter next week. That's the plan. So let's go through the story of chapter one. First of all, we have living in a godless society, living in a godless society. Now, children, do you read stories? Most of you do. I can see one of you reading one at this minute. (laughs) There we are. What do you need at the start of a story? Well, you need to know where and when it's happening. And the author usually finds a way to tell you what's it like at that time and place. There's varied ways of doing it, but you need, in other words, the scene to be set. And verse one does that. He's setting the scene in the days when the judges ruled. Well, that doesn't tell you much, does it? Except actually it tells you an awful lot if you know the book that went before, because the previous book was the book of Judges. And that book's describing what that time was like. What was it like when the judges ruled? Well, it was a time when God's people, who were the nation of Israel, kept sinning against him. They kept turning their back on God and worshipping idols. And God kept judging them, particularly by bringing enemies in to attack them. And then they'd repent for a while, then they'd go back to their sin, and they'd get judged again, and on it would go. Now, every so often in that book of Judges, why is it called Judges? Well, Israel had a judge to rule and protect them. That was good. But as the years went on, even those judges became more and more sinful. What a mixed up lot they turned out to be. And even they brought trouble to Israel. So it was a time that was in many ways lacking godly men. Sometimes the women had to fight to protect the nation because the men wouldn't. That's a bad sign. Men weren't standing up and taking their responsibility and the women suffered as a result and were put in danger. In fact, it was a time of violence and danger, especially to women. And this will be picked up on in the book of Ruth. 
In fact, the book of Judges ends with possibly the most horrible story in the Bible. The the composition is fierce because there's a lot of horrible stories in the Bible, but possibly the worst story of abuse to women is at the end of the book of Judges. And so it was a time summarised by its last verse. If you're in Ruth chapter 1, just turn back one page, at least if you've got an English Bible. I doubt anyone here has got a Hebrew Bible. They're in a different order. But the last verse summarises it as, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's rather like today. Two things it says. There's no lack of, there's a lack of respect for authority. That's today. And people make up their own morality. That's today. And notice the emphasis on they did what they saw fit. Literally, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They went by what they saw, not by what God said. That's how Judges ends, and Ruth really continues the theme. So, it's in that context, there's the context setting the scene, and it's in that context that we find in the book of Ruth three main characters. Here's the main characters. They're not the only ones, but the main ones, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And they were examples of godliness. Right living, trusting God. Surrounded by sin and danger, we're going to get examples of women trusting God. Surrounded by sinful men who mistreat women, we're going to get an example of godly manliness treating women rightly. That's Boaz. Ruth and Boaz are among the best characters in the whole Bible, and they're living in amongst the worst circumstances in the whole Bible. Ruth and Boaz, in other words, are outstandingly different from the people around them. And before we've got beyond the first phrase in verse 1, we've got a lesson for us. Have you seen the lesson for us? It's possible to be an example of godliness in our society with all of its sin and rejection of God. There's a lesson. It's possible to be an example of helpful conversation, which we'll find that Boaz most definitely is, in a workplace full of gossip and unclean talk. Is that what you face tomorrow and this week? Well, not tomorrow, but this week. In a workplace of gossip and unclean talk, it's possible to be an example of helpful conversation. It's possible to be an example of kindness in a family where the tone is harsh. For any of you in a family where the tone is harsh, could you stand out there? The book of Ruth says, yes, you can. Because Naomi, Ruth and Boaz were outstanding examples of godliness in one of the worst societies there's ever been. It's possible to be an example of friendly neighbourliness if you live on a road where no one talks to each other. It's possible, but difficult, but difficult in all of those situations, because you must be clear what God's word requires of you, what God's word expects of you, not live by what others expect of you. God's word must set your standard, which means you've got to work against having the people around you set your standards. You've got to be willing to be different. 
in order to do good to people around you, you must be willing to not fit in with people around you. That's, that's the other way around to what we sometimes think, so I'll say it again. In order to do good to the people around you, you've got to be willing to not fit in with the people around you, but be different from them. Back in 2005, I left teaching to go to Bible college. And I realised I'm going to lose my contact with unbelievers. Much as I got on with my work colleagues, I'm going to drift apart from them. So I joined a cycling club to spend time with unbelievers. And I spent my Saturday morning cycling around the countryside. But their unclean talk and general foulness meant after a while I started to ask, was I being influenced by them more than I was influencing them? I suspected this was starting to happen. And I talked to a Christian I respected about this, and he encouraged me, give it another try, because I was going to give it up. Give it another try. Make sure you're willing to be seen to be different. Make sure you're not letting them set the standards for what you talk about. Make sure you're willing not to fit in with their laddish, boastful, putting others down and generally foul conversation and attitude. Give it another try. Be willing to stand out as different. So I thought, right, okay, I will. I'll give it another try. This is what Jesus called being light in a dark world and being salt in a society that's in danger of being like rotting meat. Now, there's the scene for the story, and it's given us our first lesson that I hope is an encouragement to us who live in a godless society. Let's meet the two, uh, two of the characters of the story. So we're going to move now into, well, we're still partly in verse one, but verses one to five, we have living by sight, not by faith in verses one to five. We're introduced to a man and his family in verses one and two. There's a man and his family we're introduced to. Now, children, do you know the meaning of your name? It's nice to know the meaning of your name. Hope you do. You can find out afterwards if you don't know what your name means. Now, here's a family and all the names have meanings. The man's wife is called Naomi. That means pleasant. That explains it. Did you notice in the reading at the end of the chapter, she says, I don't fit my name anymore. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. The man has two sons. They are called Marlon and Killian. Any, anyone who... Any parents who might be in the future naming your sons, I recommend not Marlon and Killian, because Marlon means to be sick and Killian means failing. It doesn't sound the nicest thing to call your children. And sadly, it was appropriate for them, those strange names, sick and failing. Elimelech was the man himself. What does Elimelech mean? Do you remember someone crying out, Eli, Eli? you remember that? Jesus on the cross. What does Eli mean? My God, my God. Melech means king. Elimelech means my God is king. That's a good name, isn't it? That's a very good name. My God is king. But did Elimelech trust God as his king? Well, let's see now. Let's see. There's a famine. Verse one, there's a famine in the land. The word the land, by the way, in the Old Testament is very significant. It doesn't just mean a patch of ground. It means the place God had given his people Israel. 
There's a famine in the land. The harvest has failed. It's hard to get enough food. Elimelech has a plan for coping. What's his plan? Let's go off to Moab for a while. See that there in verse 1. Let's emigrate. Let's leave the country and make a home with the Moabites. Only for a while. Only for a while. He says in verse 1, I'm going to do this for a while. Then we can come back when things have improved. Except it turns out not to be for a while. It turns out to be for the rest of his life. Because he dies there. And the rest of his son's lives. Because after they've married Moabites women, they then die. Now, was Elimelech wrong to go? Was he right or wrong to go? Well, the book of Ruth doesn't tell us. But the Bible is often like this. I hope you realise this. When you read the Old Testament, it often doesn't tell you this action's right, that action's wrong. It expects you to look around the Bible and work it out. Instead of disrupting a good story, it doesn't tell you. It says, work it out. And it expects us to work it out by this. The whole book began by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. Days when people did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of what was right according to God's word. Elimelech does what is right in his own eyes. He doesn't do what is right according to God's word. How do I know that? Because God's word had repeatedly said God would care for his people in his land, Israel. And they should stay in that land. Now, by the way, this is specific to Israel. This is not a general rule, don't move country. Okay, you can't get that from the Bible. It's not saying stay in whatever country you're born in. That's the land God's given you. The land was special to Israel. This was unique. God had given his people that land. And Elimelech lived in the land God had given and where God said he would care for them. In fact, not only did Elimelech live in Israel, he lived in Bethlehem. And even that has a meaning. It means the house of bread. And the word of God repeatedly said, don't mix with the Moabites. They're the enemy. And don't marry into their families. They'll lead you into idolatry. Elimelech acted on the basis of what he saw. There's no food here now and there is food over there. Not on the basis of faith in God's word. Common sense said go where you can get food. God's word and wisdom said stay in God's land and trust him to provide. You see, biblical wisdom isn't always the same as common sense. Common sense said, go where you can see things are better. God's word and wisdom said, stay here, obey God's word and trust him that he'll make it work. Elimelech is put in the Bible as an example, a warning example. Common sense isn't always right. What the situation looks like isn't always right. God's word is always right. Trust him. And because you trust him, obey him. Let's get an example that's less ancient. It's still quite old, but it's less ancient. The Ten Booms were a family in the Netherlands in the Second World War. And the Germans invaded and the Nazis took over and the ten booms took Jews into their home and cared for them. Common sense said, don't do that, it's dangerous, you'll end up getting yourselves killed. The ten booms said, 
God's word tells us to love our neighbours and particularly the oppressed, we'll care for others and trust God to look after us in whatever way he chooses. Now, trusting God doesn't mean carelessness. So they did work out a plan for how to hide their Jewish guests. And they did practice their plans for what they would do when the Nazis came. Trusting God doesn't mean carelessness. But trusting God does mean we'll not disobey him, however hard the situation is. And so they determined we will not lie. Whatever questions we're asked, whatever Nazis come into our shop and ask us questions, we will not lie and we will not take food that has been stolen to feed our Jewish guests. Now, common sense said, no way is that going to work. What's going to happen when a Nazi comes in and asks, are you hiding Jews? What's going to happen when you can't get enough food in an occupied city? And their response was, we don't know, but we'll trust God and obey him. And we'll expect him to do what is right. It may not be comfortable. And actually, if you know the story, they didn't survive. Not all of them. But they trusted God and therefore obeyed him. They were an example of walking by faith, not by sight. Let's get back into Ruth 1 and see an example. Elimelech is an example the wrong way. Let's see an example the right way. We move into verses 6 to 22 and see living by faith, not by sight. Now, did Naomi agree with going to Moab or did she think it was a bad decision? We don't know. Haven't got a clue. But when she hears there's food in Bethlehem, she hurries back to get back home. And her daughters-in-law accompany her some way. And then she says to them, now it's time for you to go home. Go back to your parents. They say, no, we'll go with you. She says, daughters, why would you come with me? And then she reasons with them. She reasons with them in verse 11 onwards, 11 to 13. And her reasoning is a bit like this. Even if I got a husband tonight, and even if I got pregnant tonight, And even if that pregnancy was twin boys tonight, and all of that is highly unlikely, if not almost impossible, would you wait for any sons that I had tonight to grow up so you could marry them? Now, why is she talking like this? Because she knew that these two daughters-in-law, being women, life was vulnerable in that society. And they needed protection, and they needed provision. And being foreigners... And being widows made it extra hard and were a particular barrier to them getting any husband in Israel. Foreign widows, well, there were big barriers to them getting a husband in Israel. And so she's saying to them, do the common sense thing and go home to your parents. Now, one of them, Orpah, does the common sense thing. The other, Ruth, doesn't. Verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Go on, do the common sense thing. And then we get this reply from Ruth. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. 
That doesn't look like common sense, but it will turn out to be biblically wise. That doesn't fit with what Ruth sees, but it's the beginning, just the beginning of living by sight, uh, by faith in God. Now, next week, I want to look at those verses some more. Look at that turning point in Ruth's life. But for now, I just want us to see this. She's starting to live by faith. She's saying, I'll trust the God of Israel to be my God. She's not walking by sight, which says, I better go home to my parents because they can look after me. Now, what prompted Ruth to live by faith? She probably almost certainly didn't have. Well, she certainly didn't have the whole Bible. She probably didn't have any part of the Bible. She'd never met a prophet. She'd never heard a voice from God out of the sky, as far as we know. What prompted her to walk by faith? What encouraged her she could trust the God of Israel? I can only see one option. It's Naomi's example. Naomi's example. In fact, I think Naomi is the key character in the book of Ruth. But uh, you can wonder about that and discuss that sometime. I think actually the storyline of the book of Ruth is the storyline of Naomi. And the book ends with Naomi being filled. But we'll come on to that one week, I hope. There was Naomi, this isolated Israelite woman in Moab. She was in dire straits. The worst thing possible had happened to her. Husbands died, sons have died, she's stuck in a foreign country. She'll be dirt poor. But she didn't turn to the gods of Moab. Now you might say, of course she wouldn't turn to the gods of Moab. They worship these ridiculous, strange idols. Oh, but how many have found following Jesus hard and so have looked elsewhere for satisfaction? How many have found that following Jesus is a difficult path to tread and so they just drifted away from him and looked at something else to make life work better? But not Naomi. No. Naomi's interested in her homeland and she's eager to get back there. And she goes back there when she hears. Well, what does she hear? What does she hear? It's in verse six. Is it that the weather has changed? Is it that the crops have improved? What does she hear in verse 6? She hears that the Lord, that's the personal name of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. You see, she still looks to him to provide. That's what Naomi's like. She's someone who looks to the Lord to provide. She still thinks he's kind. Have a look at verse 8. She still thinks he's kind. May the Lord show kindness to you. She still thinks that's what all of life depends on. Does the Lord show kindness to you? That's what everything in life depends on. I well remember in my late teens struggling with how could I become a Christian? And in the end, God showing me the thing I need is him to show kindness to me. If he does, all is well. If he doesn't, what else is there to live for? It all depends on Is the Lord kind to you? She still thinks he's giving. Have a look at verse nine. Verse nine. May the Lord grant that each of you, that's give to each of you, rest in the home of another husband. Yes, she's not perfect. Naomi is not perfect. Some of the things she says are rather bitter and grumbly. Like verse 13. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. 
She says some things that are a bit harsh and grumbly about God. Like at the end of the chapter, when she says he's brought me back empty. She's got her daughter-in-law standing next to her. It's rather rude. She says, I've got nothing. She'll turn out to have something great. But even this is her believing God is in control. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. It's not just the random forces of nature. She thinks God's in control of everything that happens to her. And Ruth sees that and she says in verse 16, I want this God you trust to be my God. In all the troubles, I can see that that you trust that there's a God who's caring for you and I want him for myself. So will you be a Naomi? There's a simple question. Will you be a Naomi? Do people see in your life you trust in God to provide? Do people hear in your words, like Naomi's, you don't think this world is just a matter of natural causes and the the laws of science? But your words show you think actually God is behind it all. Maybe it's when you're referring to something you do and you just slip in, God willing. That's a simple way, isn't it? Just to show, I believe it's all in his hands. Does your reaction to trouble indicate to others you're not worried because you're confident in God? These troubles don't mean your life has fallen apart because you've got a hope that is beyond them, even if these troubles last all the way to the grave. Are you like Naomi? Are you the New Testament equivalent of Naomi? What's the New Testament equivalent of Naomi? Well, you could probably think of quite a few examples. Um, But this is what I'm thinking of. To people in an ungodly society, to people who were under considerable pressure to leave Jesus, and to people who were, quite a lot of them, in poverty, significant poverty, the Apostle Peter wrote this. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you have this hope. Well, that's the New Testament equivalent of Naomi. Will you be the New Testament equivalent of Naomi? And then could God use you to raise up a 21st century equivalent of Ruth? Who looks at you and says, I want your God to be my God. Now, Ruth looked at Naomi and it prompted her to trust God. But Naomi was far from perfect, as I've said. Far from perfect. And Naomi ends the chapter by saying, I'm bitter and God has left me empty. Wow, I'm bitter and God has left me empty. So how much more than Ruth should we say this God will be my God? I'll walk by faith and not by sight. Because we can look at someone better than Naomi. Have you seen someone better than Naomi? We can look at Jesus. Ruth already, when uh, we're just at the end of chapter one, and, and Naomi is just there bitter and empty, she's already trusting God. But we've got the whole story of Jesus. We can see the whole thing. We've got the whole historical record. And we can see Jesus trusting God and refusing to go by sight when he's hungry in the wilderness. And the devil's tempting him, disobey. We can see Jesus trusting God when he's surrounded by hostile people at his trial. 
And trusting God and obeying is going to take him to the cross. We can see Jesus trusting God when he's in the bitterness of the cross. And he's being emptied of his lifeblood itself. And we can see that trusting God, it didn't fit with common sense. It didn't fit with what Jesus was seeing. But it was wise because God didn't leave him empty. Ruth hasn't yet seen the end of Naomi's story. In chapter four, it will end with Naomi being filled. That's why I say I think the book's really about Naomi. It will end with her being filled. But we've seen the end of Jesus' story. We've seen it here in the historical record. And it ends with God filled Jesus with life again. And he raised him up. So Ruth is a little homely example of what we of what Jesus teaches us far more fully. You can trust God more than so-called common sense. You can trust God more than you can trust what you see. So let's walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. But Father, how we thank you. We don't live in their times. We live in a time when we can look back and see the example of the Lord Jesus. We thank you. We have it all written down for us. Historically reliable. We can, and we thank you. He's not just an example. He's a demonstration that we can trust you. Father, when we're surrounded by sin, when obeying you is hard, when disobeying you looks a lot more practical and attractive, please keep our eyes on Jesus so we walk by faith and not by sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.